Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover endometrial carcinoma. Endometrial carcinoma is the most commonly diagnosed gynecological malignancy. Almost every gynecologist will encounter it. A thorough understanding of the epidemiology, pathophysiology, and diagnostic and management strategies for this type of cancer allows the OBGYN provider to identify women at increased risk, contribute towards risk reduction, and facilitate early diagnosis. In the United States, endometrial cancer will be diagnosed in about 54,000 women per year with 10,000 succumbing to the disease. More than 70,000 of cases of endometrial cancer are stage 1 at the time of diagnosis when the reported 5-year survival rate is 90%. The median age of diagnosis in the U.S. is 63 years. Caucasian women have a 2.81% lifetime risk of developing uterine cancer compared with a 2.48% lifetime risk for African American women. African American women are more likely to have non-endometrioid high-grade tumors. This is also called type 2 carcinoma, which are associated with a more advanced stage of disease at the time of diagnosis compared with Caucasian women who have similar demographic characteristics. Endometrial cancer can be categorized broadly into two different types that differ in epidemiology, genetics, prognosis, and even treatment. Type 1, or endometrioid adenocarcinoma, is the most common histologic type of endometrial cancer, and it accounts for more than three-fourths of all cases. Type 2 is characterized by clear cell and papillary serous tumor histologies. Most cases of type 1 cancer are low-grade and are confined to the uterus when diagnosed. The precursor lesion of type 1 endometrioid adenocarcinoma is endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, or EIN. Okay, now remember that in a previous podcast, we covered EIN, its diagnosis and management. All right, now we have to say a quick note about EIN. Remember that, according to the data, when endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia is treated conservatively, that's mean with a uterine-sparing regimen, usually medication, the 19-year cumulative risk of developing endometrial cancer is reported to be almost 28%. Type 2 cancer is considered to be high-grade and to have a significant risk of extrauterine disease and a poorer prognosis than type 1. Uterine papillary serous carcinoma accounts for only about 10% of cases of all uterine cancer, but it's responsible for the death of almost 40% of patients with endometrial cancer. Clear cell histology also is rare, but is associated with a similar poor prognosis. All right, next, let's cover risk factors for endometrial adenocarcinoma.
known risk factors for type 1 uterine cancer include older age, residency in North America, higher age of education or income, white race, nulliparity, a history of infertility, late age at natural menopause, and an early age of menarche long-term use of unopposed estrogen, tamoxifen use, obesity, an estrogen-producing tumor, a personal history of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, or gallbladder disease, and of course, Lynch syndrome. Lynch syndrome can confer a relative risk of developing type 1 uterine cancer ranging from 6 to 20. Systemic unopposed estrogen therapy increases the risk of endometrial cancer by up to 20-fold, with the increasing risk correlating with the duration of use. Concomitant progestin administration mitigates this risk when progestins are administered continuously, intermittently, or through a levonorgestrel-releasing IUS, the risk is reduced to below that of women not receiving hormone therapy. Now, smoking is an interesting risk factor. Smoking has been associated with a decreased risk of type 1 endometrial cancer, especially in postmenopausal women. However, smoking has been associated with an increased risk of type 2 endometrial cancer. Okay, now we have to cover Lynch syndrome. Women with Lynch syndrome, formerly known as hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, are at an increased risk of developing colon cancer, ovarian cancer, and type 1 endometrial cancer. Again, that's a clinical pearl. Remember, colon, ovary, and uterine with Lynch syndrome. This is an autosomal dominant syndrome characterized by a germline mutation in one of the mismatch repair genes. The estimated cumulative risk of developing endometrial cancer by age 70 years ranges from 16 to 61 percent depending on the individual genetic mutation. Okay, when we come back, let's get into the clinical presentation and surgical staging of the condition. The most common symptom of endometrial cancers are abnormal uterine bleeding, including irregular menses and intermenstrual bleeding, as well as postmenopausal bleeding. Patients who have advanced disease may have symptoms similar to those seen with advanced ovarian cancer, like abdominal or pelvic pain, abdominal distension, bloating, early satiety, and a change in bowel and bladder function. The evaluation of premenopausal women with abnormal uterine bleeding includes a thorough medical history and physical exam, appropriate lab and imaging tests, and consideration of age-related risk factors. The literature is unclear about when evaluation with imaging is indicated in premenopausal women with abnormal uterine bleeding. Ultrasound assessment of the endometrial thickness in premenopausal women has no diagnostic value and should not be performed. Again, endometrial thickness of 4 millimeters or more is restricted to postmenopausal patients. The decision to histologically evaluate the endometrium with a biopsy should be based on symptomatology and clinical presentation. Now, any vaginal bleeding in a postmenopausal woman requires assessment to exclude malignancy. Women with postmenopausal uterine bleeding may be assessed initially with either endometrial biopsy or transvaginal ultrasound. This initial evaluation does not require performance of both tests. Among postmenopausal women who experience uterine bleeding, pelvic ultrasound and endometrial sampling have shown efficacy. 
It reviewed the data from about 2,900 postmenopausal women collected from 13 published studies demonstrate that an endometrial thickness of 5 millimeters or less by ultrasound resulted in a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 54% for the detection of endometrial cancer. Endometrial thickness of greater than 4 millimeters in a patient with postmenopausal bleeding should trigger alternative evaluations like sonohysterography, office hysteroscopy, or endometrial biopsy, and it should include an ability to adequately visualize the endometrial cavity. Okay, now we have to clarify this issue on endometrial thickness because rare cases of endometrial carcinoma, particularly type 2, can present with endometrial thicknesses of less than 3 millimeters. Any woman presenting in the postmenopausal period with persistent or recurrent uterine bleeding should prompt a histological evaluation of the endometrium regardless of endometrial thickness. Comprehensive surgical staging of endometrial cancer involves removing the uterus, cervix, adnexa, and pelvic and paraaortic lymph node tissue as well as obtaining pelvic washings. Pelvic lymphadenectomy typically is defined as removal of the nodes from the distal half of the common iliac arteries, the anterior and medial aspects of the external iliac artery and vein down to the point at which the deep circumflex iliac vein crosses the external iliac artery and the obturator fat pad anterior to the obturator nerve. Paraaortic lymph node dissection is defined as removal of nodal tissue over the distal inferior vena cava from the level of the inferior mesenteric artery to the mid-right common iliac artery and removal of the nodal tissue between the aorta and the left ureter from the inferior mesenteric artery to the mid-left common iliac artery. Now, we have to clarify this lymph node dissection. Despite well-defined criteria for surgical staging, some surgeons still debate the extent of lymph adenectomy that's necessary. Particular controversy surrounds the need for the extent of paraaortic lymph node dissection in all patients. Getting into the controversy of whether paraaortic lymph node dissection should occur or not in all patients is beyond the scope of this podcast, but just remember that paraaortic lymph node dissection for Type 1 endometrial cancer can be somewhat controversial. Okay, now before we get into the specific staging put out by FIGO, that's the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics for endometrial cancer, let's talk about the main advantages and potential complications of comprehensive staging. The advantages of comprehensive surgical staging lie in the diagnosis, prognosis, and the proper triage of patients for adjuvant therapy. FIGO's surgical staging system for endometrial cancer is based on surgical pathology, and comprehensive staging allows for accurate definition of disease extent. Now, we'll get into those stages in a minute, but when comprehensive surgical staging has identified stage 1 disease, pathologic findings of the hysterectomy specimen and patient factors can identify patients who might benefit from further treatment. According to the data, factors that can influence the need for further therapy include tumor grade, like grade 2 and grade 3, the depth of myometrial invasion, like it going into the outer third of the myometrium, and lymphovascular space invasion. Radiation therapy in these patients does result in improved progression-free survival and fewer local recurrences. 
Now, alternatively, those patients with stage 1 disease who do not have high intermediate risk factors can be identified and over-treatment can be avoided, sparing them from potential complications of radiation therapy. Okay, let's get into staging as we get towards the end of this podcast. According to the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, that's FIGO, stage 1 endometrial cancer is tumor confined to the corpus uteri. Stage 1A is no or less than half myometrial invasion. Stage 1B is invasion equal to or more than one half of the myometrium. Stage 2 is when the tumor invades the cervical stroma but does not extend beyond the uterus. Stage 3 is local and or regional spread of the tumor. Stage 3a is when the tumor invades serosa of the corpus uteri and or the adnexa. Stage 3b is when the tumor invades the vagina and or parametrial involvement. Stage 3c is when there's metastasis to pelvic or paraaortic lymph nodes. Now, stage 3c1 has positive pelvic nodes, and stage 3c2 has positive paraaortic lymph nodes with or without positive pelvic nodes. Stage 4 is tumor that invades the bladder and or bowel mucosa or has distant mets. Again, in a general term, stage 1 is tumor confined to the uterus. Stage 2 is tumor that invades the cervical stroma but does not extend beyond the uterus. Stage 3 is local or regional spread of the tumor. And stage 4 is when the tumor invades bladder, bowel, or has distant metastasis. Okay, now let's cover briefly advanced stage or recurrent endometrial cancer. Advanced stage endometrial cancer is a heterogeneous disease that may present as microscopic or macroscopic lymph node mets, intra-abdominal metastasis, or distant inoperable metastasis like pulmonary metastasis. Most investigators consider patients with these different presentations as one group, despite their very different prognosis. Therefore, defining an optimal treatment regimen is difficult, and that's the statement from the college. Although optimal cytoreductive surgery has a therapeutic benefit, patients with metastatic disease, even if resected to microscopic residual disease, have a higher risk of recurrence and will benefit from adjuvant treatment. The use of chemotherapy in the treatment of advanced endometrial cancer improves patient outcomes. Now, here's your clinical pearl. Chemotherapy and radiation therapy used in combination offers superior outcomes compared with single modality treatment. Okay, well now here's a clinical dilemma. What do we do with a patient with endometrial cancer when fertility is still desired? Well, progestins have been the mainstay of conservative hormonal treatment for endometrial cancer in the young woman who wants to preserve fertility and the women who is deemed to be a poor surgical candidate. The most commonly used progestins are medroxyprogesterone acetate and magestrol acetate or megase. Repeat endometrial sampling usually is performed every three months in patients while the undergo progestin therapy. Now, in a phase two prospective study, women 40 years or younger who had either endometrial cancer presumed to be confined to the uterus or endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia were treated with oral medroxyprogesterone acetate for 26 weeks. Although the complete response rate was 68%, 47% of those who achieved a complete response subsequently had a recurrence. Most investigators recommend definitive surgical management after the completion of childbearing or if conservative options fail.
All right, well, let's finish up the podcast with a second clinical dilemma. What do we do with patients who have had surgical management of endometrial cancer with a TAH BSO, but now are surgically menopausal? Well, remember that of women undergoing hysterectomy and BSO for endometrial carcinoma, 25% are premenopausal, and many of these women will develop menopausal symptoms from the abrupt withdrawal of their ovarian-produced hormones. For these women, quality of life is extremely important important and discussion of estrogen treatment is necessary. Now, traditionally, women with endometrial carcinoma were denied estrogen because of the concern for increased risk of cancer recurrence. In patients with early stage endometrial cancer, however, there's actually very little evidence to support a detrimental effect. So, it's the opinion of the college and the Society of Gynecology Oncologists that estrogen therapy for the management of menopausal symptoms in survivors of early-stage endometrial cancers can be considered after thorough counseling about the risks and benefits. Well, that wraps up our podcast covering endometrial cancer. The reference for this podcast was the ACOG Practice Bulletin released by the Society of Gynecology Oncology and ACOG, which was Practice Bulletin number 149.